0: What is up, West Village family? How is everyone doing? Uh, it is great to have you with uh, with us. My name is Chris, one of the leaders here at, uh, at West Village Church. We are in week two of a teaching series, a little mini series we're doing called "Collision of Kingdoms," where we're we're looking at this issue of the church uh, or Christianity, Christians, followers of Jesus, and politics. How do those two things work? Uh, we've been saying this a lot. Uh, we'll probably continue to say it through uh, through this entire series, but. Um, you know, you look out at our world right now, how things are going in terms of politics, even within the church, really, and it's it's just a hot mess. Uh, there's so so much of uh, you know, just confusion around how to engage with this stuff, and, and it's dividing us. I, I think I said this last week uh, in week one of our teaching series that, um, you know, the, the issue for the church uh, in the future, the issues that are going to divide the church in the future are not issues of doctrine, <clears throat> It's not like our, our view of the atonement or scriptures or salvation uh, that is going to divide the church. It's it's politics. It's our, our stance on different political issues. And, and these are the things that are, are coming up within the church. And so we just said, like, we, we got to stop. we got to hit pause here and and have a conversation uh, about this issue. And, and really what we're trying to do in this series, we're not necessarily, and, and this has been a critique we've received from some people, um, that we're, we're not really telling people what to think, okay? This isn't going to be a teaching series where we say, like, you know, here's the Christian view on all these different issues. Although, uh, I'll get to that in just a second, but we are going to answer some of those questions in another venue, another format. But really what our hope is with this series is uh, to teach us how to think, to how, how to have a Christian mind or a Christian worldview that then we interpret the political arena or the political spectrum through that grid Uh, And so in this series, though, what we want to do is we actually want to hear from you. We heard from some of you last week. We got text messages. We got emails. It was great. But we want to hear from you. Uh, What questions do you have? What thoughts do you have? How are you feeling about this conversation that we're having? Um, Give us your feedback. Uh, A couple of ways you can do that. You can send a quick email to uh, myself, Chris, at westvillagechurch.com. There's a number on the screen. You can text that number. For those of you who are listening in, uh, the number is 778-722-1403. Just send a text with your question to that number. And then what we're going to do is we're going to be compiling those questions, those thoughts. And out of that, we're going to be releasing a series of short videos and having some conversations around... Um, those questions and giving answers to those questions and so uh, that's kind of where we're going that's the, the big idea of this series and the question we're going to answer today in this series uh, in this message rather specifically is how is it that the church should relate to the government In other words, where does the government fit in the bigger vision that God has for His people? Throughout church history, there's been a number of different ways that that Christians have thought about this and and church fathers and church leaders have thought about this. There's been a number of different government or expressions of government that the church has had to live under. And so we want to explore some of these ideas and, and really just ask the question, how is it that we as the church or we as the people of God or as Christians, followers of Jesus relate to the government? How should we think about them? But before we get right into that, uh, what I want to do, and I'm going to do this every single week because I think it's really important for us to have this as a footing or a foundation for this conversation. I just kind of want to frame this conversation up. So if you have a Bible, go to uh, go to Genesis chapter 1. Uh, and in Genesis chapter 1, obviously we have here the beginning of the story of God, the beginning of the Bible, uh, but this is also the beginning of God's redemptive story. So in Genesis 1 and 2, we have a picture of God's creation of the cosmos, right? He creates the heavens and the earth. He creates the world. He, he creates humanity in, in this uh this particular passage of scripture that we're going to look at here, we actually get a picture of what it looks like when God creates and some of the the mandates that he gives to his creation. So if you have a Bible, Genesis chapter 1, uh, we're going to read from verses 26 down to 31. And here's what is recorded for us. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness. So God's going to create Adam and Eve. He's going to create Humanity, and he's going to do that in in his image and likeness. In other words, we are uh, what what is called an image bearer of God. If you're if you're a person, right, you're an image bearer of God. You reflect the very nature, essence, and character of God. That's important. So God says, "Let us make man in our image, uh, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground." <clears throat> Goes on to say. So, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So, this is the, the this is Hebrew poetry, but it's giving us a picture of God's creation of Adam and Eve, or of humanity. Then he goes on and says this in verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule over the fish. Uh, in the sea, in the birds, in the sky, and every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And so it was, and God saw saw all that he made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Now, I want to pull out a couple of quick thoughts uh, from this passage of scripture. So we get this, this picture of God creating mankind in his image and likeness. And then notice what he says in verse 28. He says, God blessed them, humanity, and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, and fill the earth and subdue it. Now, right there, we get a picture of God's intent for humanity. It's this picture that his, his earth, his world, would be filled with his image bearers. This is, uh, this is what some would call God's dominion mandate that he creates Adam and Eve in his image and likeness, and then he gives them a dominion mandate. In other words, that they would have dominion over the earth. And their job in having dominion was to reflect the glory of God. It was to bring more and more glory to God. Now, he gives some very specific instructions on on how to do this. So, again, notice in verse 28 what he says. Two things, and I just kind of want to hit this quickly before we get into the topic at hand. He says this, Be fruitful and increase in number. So, so God says, I want you to fill the earth and subdue it, and there's a couple of ways that this is going to happen. The first one is uh, be fruitful and multiply. Be, uh, be fruitful and increase in number. Uh, this doesn't take a whole lot of explaining, but really what, what uh, God's telling I need to do is, is go and make some babies, right? We as a church, we, we joke and we say, you know, this is like our mission statement, be fruitful and multiply, because Uh, that's what we do. We have a lot of babies. Even during COVID, there's been lots and lots of babies. But God says one of the ways that you're gonna fill the earth, that you're gonna have dominion over the earth is by multiplying yourself. But then there's a second way. Look at what he says down in verse 29 and 30. I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit uh, with seed in it. They will be yours for food and all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green, green plant for food And it was so. So God says the other way that you are to have dominion, to reflect my glory, is by tilling or working the ground. Now, I know a lot of us, when we think of work, uh, we immediately think of like, you know, not a good thing. Work is a bad thing. Work is evil. Work is, you know, it's because of Satan and sin that we have to work. That's not the case. That is not the case. God actually gives Adam right here a mandate to work the ground. And by working the ground, by bringing the earth under his dominion, he's actually bringing glory to God. And, and right here, this is important for us to understand. Right here, we get a picture of what God's intent for humanity. At West Village, we would say that this is what we would call a picture of gospel saturation. This is the first inclination or foreshadowing to what we would call gospel saturation, right? That the earth would be filled. This is right out of Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14, that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That God's heart has always been and it always will be to fill the earth with his image bearers. That this world would be one that would scream his name and it would bring glory to his name. That's why we say as a church that we exist to make Jesus known because that's what we want to do. We want to be a part of fulfilling this mandate. Now the reason I want to start here is because this this is so important for us to understand that this is our story. This is not just Uh, words on a page, but this is a story that defines reality for those of us who are followers of Jesus. That our mandate is to fulfill what God has started here in Genesis chapter 1, that we are to be the kind of people that are making and being a part of gospel saturation happening in our city, in our province, in our country, and, and in our world. That our world, our lives are not driven by some Political vision or political narrative, uh, we're not we're not out to uh, have some political agenda come to bear uh, on our on our nation, but our primary allegiance is to God, His kingdom and His mission. It's so important. But but as we talked about last week, the story doesn't end here, right? Genesis three happens, and, and I, again, I won't spend too much time on this. But in, in Genesis chapter three, we have. The first inclination of what the Bible describes as sin, and and what happens in Genesis chapter three, uh, is that Adam and Eve choose rebellion against God. But the the very essence, as again as we said last week, the very essence of their their rebellion against God was not so much a bad action or wrong action. It was much deeper than that. That the bad uh, the disobedience that they displayed in the garden was actually a function of something that deeper that was happening in their heart whereby they try to invert the, the order of creator and creation, right? We have creator, God, who creates the heavens and the earth, and we have creation, those who are made by his hand. And what Adam and Eve were functionally saying in Genesis chapter 3 when they chose to rebel against God is they were functionally saying, God, we, we actually want to be we want to be above you. We think we're smarter than you. We think we know more than you. At the very root of all sin, all rebellion, that's what we're functionally saying. We're saying that we know better than God. Our our ways are higher than your ways. Our thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Our we we actually have a better vision for our own lives, and so Adam and Eve they choose this way. They they choose to rebel against God. And God comes in and he brings, uh, he brings judgment or he brings justice to them. Uh, so if you have Bible, go to Genesis chapter three. And what I want you to see is is the the very specific way in which God brings judgment to Adam and Eve. Look at what it says in Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 14. So first God comes and he he brings judgment against the serpent, also Satan, known as Satan. So verse 14 says this, So the Lord God said to the serpent, that's Satan, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat the dust. All the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So he comes and he brings judgment against the serpent. But in the midst of this judgment, don't miss this, there's actually a thread of hope. This is actually what theologians would call the first gospel proclamation in the Bible. And we see this, this foreshadowing of the offspring of the woman, who is Eve, who's going to come and, and destroy evil. And so we get this picture of what Jesus is going to ultimately accomplish on the cross in destroying Satan, evil, sin, death, and hell. That's that's what's coming in the story, but we're, we're not there yet, okay? But then notice this, God comes Up against Eve, and he brings judgment against her. Look at what he says, and I will put enmity, or sorry, to the woman, verse uh, 16, to the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. Your painful labor, uh, with painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, okay. He still says you're going to have kids, but now you're going to have kids, and it's going to hurt. Now, I haven't had a kid. I have no idea how you know what it feels like, but I've been in the room when many children are born. I have many children, and it didn't look fun. It looked painful. It looked like it came with a lot of pain, and that's what God says is going to happen as a result of the rebellion. Then you go down to verse 17, and now God is going to come against Adam. Look at what he says. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree, about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Here's here's what's going to happen to you. Cursed is the ground because of you. Uh, Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life, and it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken for dust you are and to dust you will return So in other words what God is saying to Adam is yeah you were called to steward the earth and work the earth and bring it under dominion you're still called to do that but now it's going to it's going to hurt it's going to uh, be a labor Right, this is this is why um, this is why we kind of hate work, it's not a a function of work being evil, it's a function of sin. Right? This is why we, 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 we go to bed on Sunday night and we wake up in the morning and it's just like, oh gosh, I don't want to go to work. Why? Because now there's this resistance, we still have to work. Adam's still called to work, but now there's this resistance against his work. Now, good news for us, right? There's not going to be any Mondays in heaven, right? Heaven's going to be an eternity of Saturdays. We'll still work, but it's going to be like Saturday kind of work, not Monday kind of work. But here's here's what we have to get a picture of. Here's what I want us to see is that God's dominion mandate, his, his call for gospel saturation, his call for the earth to be filled with the knowledge of his glory, his his call for Adam and Eve to fill the earth and subdue it, it still stands. It's still still real. But now there's this resistance that comes against it. Now they're fighting against evil. They're fighting against sin. They're fighting against their own rebellion. They're fighting against their own flesh. They're fighting against Satan and his works and effects. They're fighting against all these things as they seek to bring dominion to the earth, as they seek to bring the glory of God to the earth. And that's what we experience as we seek to make Jesus known in our city. Okay, Chris, that's great. Thank you for the theology lesson. But what does this have to do with the political conversation? Well, I would submit to us it has everything to do with it. We have to have this as a framework or a footing to understand where the political conversation fits in because so often here's what happens for us is on one track we run our, 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 our story of God, right? We run our, our God's vision for our life and we, we talk about Jesus. But then we have this other track over here and it's a political narrative and it seems as if these two things don't intersect. In fact, this is why the church has had such a difficult time In particular, in this season, trying to figure out, trying to sort out what it looks like to actually be a Christian in the political arena. Because we don't actually understand fully how these two things intersect and work together. And so as a result, what often happens, Okay, we make these concessions. We're willing to compromise on particular aspects of the Christian story, of our our primary story, of of God's call on our life to to make disciples who make disciples, to fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, to saturate the world with the gospel. We we make concessions in that area for the sake of political expediency. In other words, to move forward our particular political agenda, we're willing to compromise. And here's why, because a lot of times, and some of you will disagree with me on this, that's okay. Sometimes sometimes we, we confuse or we conflate those two realities. We confuse a political agenda with God's agenda. We confuse political expediency with making Jesus known. And we have a really hard time unthreading how those two things are actually working themselves out. So what I want to do with the rest of our time is to actually ask the question, how now, in light of this story, this story that defines reality for those of us who would identify as followers of Jesus, how are we to relate as Christians to the government? Uh, th- throughout church history, there's been a number, a broad spectrum of ideas and thoughts on this issue. Uh, one book that I read, not all of because it's a really big book, but I read a good portion of uh, that was super helpful was a book uh, by Wayne Grudem, who's a theologian. And he, he wrote a book uh, that is entitled um, Politics According to the Bible. And, and he gives a number of ways uh, that... Throughout church history, that we have thought about the government and the church, the way those two things are going to interact, and what I want to do is kind of lay out some ways that I think are incorrect, and then at the very end, I'm going to lay out for us what I think is the correct view. So, so let's start with uh, the incorrect views. Okay, so the first one is this, and, and I think at different times, as I've already said, at different times the church has held these positions. I think within uh, the church now there are. Uh, remnants of all of these wrong views that are held within our our current moment as it's constituted. So here's the first one though. The government should compel religion. So the first wrong view is the the view that the government should actually compel religion. Now this is kind of the idea that we can somehow create a Christian nation. That if we could have uh, Christian leaders, if we could have uh, Christian politicians, Christian judges, Christian mayors, Christians on the school board, trustee, uh, the board of trustees rather, that we could impose a Christian agenda on on our nation. And some people would go so far as to say that you could actually and should actually have a nation not that is just influencing the culture but that is actually imposing its views on the culture that we should actually have an official state religion known as the Christian religion and we should actually have an official state church and and it could be a, a variety of different uh denominational churches but that we should actually we should actually mandate or legislate Christianity as a state religion and so ultimately what this view is trying to espouse is the idea that the government should actually be compelling it's adherence its citizens to give themselves over to a particular religion now this is not a uniquely christian idea there are many countries in the world uh, i spent some time one summer in indonesia indonesia at least when i was there i'm sure it still is was the largest muslim country in the world at the time of uh, at the time i was there when you were born it was the law that you actually had to identify a religious a religious identification as a person. You could, not, you could not say you had no religious affiliation. And they had five approved religions that you could choose from. You had to pick one. And so this is not uniquely Christian, but this is a view that has been held widely throughout church history. In fact, much of church history, it has been the case that the, the, the church has been in power with the government and has compelled religion. Now, there's a couple of problems with this view. Let me just give us a couple. The first one is this. It has never gone well for the church throughout all of our history when we are in power. When the church is elevated to the same status as the government, when the church and the government are intertwined with one another, it does not ever go well. Uh, Whenever you look back over church history and see some of the worst things that have been done in the name of Jesus, when you look at some of the atrocities that have been done in the name of religion or in the name of of Jesus specifically, it is almost always because the church has power, right? Power ultimately ends up corrupting the purity of the gospel. And so it's never been a good thing for us to have that kind of power. Also, Jesus made it clear that, that there's actually to be a distinction between the sphere of influence that the government has and the sphere of influence that the church has. In Matthew chapter 22, he's engaging in a conversation with the Pharisees um, and and they're asking him some theological questions and he uh, he asks for a coin and he holds a coin up and, and he says, you know, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And what Jesus is doing in that moment is he's, he's kind of differentiating between the two spheres of influence, that the government has a sphere of influence, a civic sphere of influence, and so we're going to talk all about uh, what that sphere of influence is next week, uh, but that the church has its own sphere of influence. And those two things needed to be separated. In fact, this is one of the main reasons why we talk about this idea of separation of church and state because of the Matthew 22 text. But then also this, and perhaps this is most important, Jesus himself never actually compels anyone to follow him. Right? When you think of the ministry of Jesus, what, what, what do we see? We see him inviting people to come and follow him. But he never mandates or legislates that we follow him. Now a day is coming where every single person will give account, where you know, the Apostle Paul says every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But in Jesus' earthly ministry, he never compelled. In fact, the kingdom of heaven is is not a top-down way of changing and transforming a person. It's it's a bottom-up or an inside-out way of changing and transforming a person. Jesus, when he talks about discipleship, he talks about changing and transforming the heart. He talks about being born again. And this is something that cannot be compelled. The Apostle Paul says it's the kindness of God that leads to our repentance. And so we would be silly to think that we can actually compel anyone to follow Jesus or legislate that anyone follow Jesus or mandate uh, that anyone follow Jesus. If any of you have kids, you know that this is impossible, right? This is a this is a spiritual work. This is an invitational work. And so that's the first wrong view. The second wrong view is this. It's the complete opposite, but, but nonetheless, it, it's worth talking about. And this is the idea that the government should completely exclude religion. So this is the idea that, that we should exclude any sort of religious involvement with regards to the government. No prayers prayed, no religious icons on or Bible verses on any of our buildings. And there needs to be this complete and utter separation of church and state. Now, interestingly enough, when we talk about the separation of church and state, so often, at least now, it's used as a, as a moniker to... Um, to imply that we don't want the church meddling in the affairs of the government, right? We want to keep those, those bad uh, religious folk out of the government, and we want this pure expression of government. That's a, that's a lot of times how it's talked about now. But the, the, um, the, the inception of this idea of the separation of church and state was actually the complete opposite. This was something that, that was birthed out of the church, saying we don't want the government corrupting the purity of the gospel. Now, here's the interesting thing about this idea that we should completely exclude religion from the government. It's completely and fundamentally impossible to accomplish this. I mean, what what it assumes is that as a human being, that, that I am somehow able to set aside my most personal and deeply held beliefs and convictions and enter into a conversation without having any outside influence whatsoever. But that's impossible for a person to do. We're all, all the time, constantly being shaped and formed by ideas and thoughts, and and, and my my expression of thought and my convictions and my views on the world and how it works is deeply informed by my, my following of Jesus, my religious practice, if you will. So it's impossible to actually separate that and for me to enter into the political arena. Here's the other problem, though. This actually assumes that a person can somehow come to the political task or the political conversation completely unbiased. In other words, that they have no other outside influence that is shaping them. In other words, that there's sort of this null position that we can all attain where we're having a conversation that is not influenced in any way, shape, or form by any outside religious thought or any other thought whatsoever. But the reality is every single one of us has a worldview. Every single one of us has deeply held values and convictions and whether you're religious or uh, a Christian or a Muslim or you're agnostic or you're a pure naturalist or an atheist you bring those ideas into the conversation so the idea of completely excluding religion from from any political conversation whatsoever is impossible and in fact the question really isn't um, should we exclude religion or not it's which religions are we going to exclude because it's impossible for us to exclude every worldview, every idea in the marketplace. And so this is an inconsistent idea. The last one that I want to cover is this idea that the church should just do evangelism and not politics. The church should just do evangelism and not politics. Now this is This is the idea that, uh, as Christians, our primary task, or or perhaps even our only task, is to really just preach the gospel. Like, that's all we have to do. We have to go out, we have to preach the gospel, and it's our job to change hearts and minds, and we're going to just keep to the task of preaching the gospel, keep to the task of doing evangelism, and as we do evangelism, people will change. As people change, culture will be transformed, society will be transformed. Now, for me, honestly, this is one that that I have the temptation to fall into. Like this, this is a, as a view, because I look out at the political world and I'm like, man, it is it is such a hot mess. I want nothing, I want nothing to do with it. But the problem is this: this view that evangelism is the only work that we as Christians are supposed to do is it's it's kind of reductionistic. It's reductionistic of the overall mission that God has for us. Remember back to Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, right? What's his, what's his mission? What's his vision? It's, it's this idea of dominion. It's a dominion mandate. It's gospel saturation. Well, that gospel saturation includes doing justice. It includes pursuing righteousness. It includes compassion, And the political arena is one of the ways in which we can actually accomplish this. And those things need to happen within the political spectrum as well. And so we have to caution ourselves against reducing the work of the church to pure, only evangelism. So if those are the wrong ways that we as Christians, as the church, view government, what are the right ways or what is the correct way? Well, Christopher Wright, who wrote a great book that uh, we are actually getting our Foundations class to read. Shout out to Foundations class. Uh, If you haven't signed up, you need to sign up. But he wrote a great book called uh, The Mission of God. And in his book, what he's trying to do is he's trying to take a step back and he's trying to give us a more holistic picture of God's mission, of this Genesis 1 and 2 mandate, this this idea that we are to have dominion over the earth. And he uses the story of Exodus as a bit of a framework for what this could and should look like. Now, if you're familiar with the story of Exodus, uh, this is the idea that the nation of Israel, God's people, were enslaved to the nation of Egypt. And Pharaoh was enslaving them, he was working them hard, and God wanted to rescue and redeem his people, and he does. He indeed comes in and he rescues and redeems his people. Now, what Wright does, and he does it really well, does a good job doing, is he kind of, he juxtaposes... The, what God does in the Exodus narrative between how we often reduce the gospel, right? So he, he says, like, he kind of paints this picture of like, you know, did God come in and, and simply say to the Israelites, you know, just pray to accept me as your personal Lord and Savior, right? Like, you just have to personally invite me into your heart, or you have to pray this prayer. And then, you know, once God got them saved, he just kind of left them there in, in slavery to Egypt. Of course not, that's not what happened, right? What does God do? He comes in and he saves, like he actually saves them. He redeems them, he purchases them. And I want you just to think about the holistic nature of what God does in the Exodus story. He saves them from slavery. He he saves them from a tyrannical leader and ruler. He brings them into a new land. So he takes them from, from a foreign land, a land that was not their own, and he brings them into a new land. He gives them a home. And he, he removes a tyrannical leader, one who was imposing uh, more brokenness, more sin, uh, more heartache, more hurt, more pain upon the people. And then he gives them himself as his leader, as their leader rather. And we get this picture through the Exodus narrative of this holistic reality of what it looks like to live out God's mission. That that God's heart, his desire, is not just merely for personal salvation, although of course, of course that's what God wants. He wants our hearts and our minds to be changed and transformed and conformed into the image and likeness of Jesus. That's what he wants. But there's a bigger picture at play. There's a culture that needs to be transformed. There's society that needs to be transformed. There's injustices that need to, to be fixed and restored. There's compassion that needs to be handed out. And our job as the church is to actually go into the world and to bring these things to bear. And so what what Christopher Wright kind of puts out on the table is that politics, the political conversation, the political arena is actually a part of this redemptive story. Now, it's really important that we, we understand that it's a part of, it's not the only, it's not the biggest, it's not the most important, but it's a part of God's Story. It's a part of the way in which God wants to save the world, redeem the world, bring salvation to the world. And so, back to the question at hand what is the nature of our relationship to the state, to the government? It's what's this. We should seek to have influence in the political realm in order to make Jesus known. That's our objective. Our objective is to make much of Jesus. And so just like if you are a business owner, as a business owner, your primary objective as a business owner is not to make money. Your primary objective is to make Jesus known. It's to run your business in such a way as it reflects the the glory of God. Maybe it is to make money, but it's to steward the resources that you make uh, from your business to fund the mission of Jesus in our world. Or maybe you're a student. What's your primary allegiance as a, as a student? What's your primary objective as a student? It's not to get good grades. It's not to, you know, um, you know, get on the the president's honor roll or the dean's honor roll. It's not to you know build a, a resume that you can leverage into a, a great career. Those are wonderful things. But your primary allegiance is to to ask the question like, how do I leverage this for the glory of God? How do I leverage this to make Jesus known? How do I how do I use this time? Maybe it's the students you're interacting with. Maybe it's the, the type of career you're gonna go into, but all of it comes underneath God's story. Same thing is true if you're an athlete. This isn't just about playing a sport. It's not just about um, having fun or competing or winning or losing or whatever. This is all about the glory of God. All of these things and including A political conversation, they all come underneath the story of God. And the trap that we can so easily fall into is that we can either make too much of the political realm, thinking that it has the ability to achieve something that it doesn't actually have the ability to achieve, or we can make too little of it, thinking, you know what, it's too messy, it's too complicated, it's too convoluted, let's just hit the eject button. But the right response is to come into that area and ask the question, how do we make Jesus known? How do we make him known in how we vote? How do we make him known in how do we and how we converse about these issues? How do we make him known if you're called to go be in the political spectrum, to go be a politician, to go have political influence? How do we make him known? And church history is littered; it is absolutely littered with examples of Christians. Doing just this. Doing exactly what God calls us to do in Genesis chapter three through political means. If you go back to the fourth century, the early church in the fourth century, they were known for standing up for the rights of the unborn and for children. They lived in a Greco-Roman society where children were considered a hindrance. If you had too many or the wrong gender, you just wanted to discard them because they were expensive and costly. And so that's what what happened? And the church entered into that brokenness. And by doing so, they actually started to to take children in, adopt children, tell people, you know, don't don't discard your babies. Don't don't commit infanticide. Let us take your children. And eventually, what ended up happening as the church grew and as its influence grew, they actually started to change the culture. And infanticide was stopped. Uh, In the 19th century. In uh, in India, there were uh, a group of radical Hindus who who regularly there was this practice that they had where if uh, if a wife's husband would die, so she's a widow, <clears throat> that she would be burned alive with her dead husband. And there was a, a missionary by the name um, of William Carey. He's a British missionary who went to India, and he came across this practice, and he he saw it, and he was mortified, and he became the impetus. For seeing that, that, that practice and that it was, it was actually a government policy, seeing that changed. He started to lobby the government, other missionaries who were coming in started working with them, started working with some of the, 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 the less, um, uh, like the non Hindu Indians, and, and starting to work within the political system and spectrum to, to see change happen, to bring justice to bear on the society. Uh, one that is probably really well known. A guy by the name of William Wilberforce, right? In the 18th century, most people know him. Young man, became a follower of Jesus around the age of 20. Ended up um, moving into a career in politics. And through his uh, political uh, influence, he became convicted of the the African slave trade that was so so problematic and, and popular at the time he actually was a huge impetus for the abolition of the African slave trade. And he's a wonderful example of what it actually looks like for a Christian to enter into the political arena and say, what does it look like to bring the kingdom of God to bear? What does it look like for there to be justice? What does it look like for there to be compassion? What does it look like for there, for there to be a reality where Jesus can be made known here? Because the things I'm seeing, these do not bring honor and glory to him. And so as followers of Jesus, our call is not to be political. It's not. Our our call is to make Jesus known. Our primary allegiance is to Jesus. We follow Jesus and we want to make the name of Jesus great. Because Jesus and his kingdom are about compassion and they're about grace and they're about justice and they're about mercy, that's what we're about. But the reality is we, we kind of live in this in-between time, right? We, we live in this Genesis 3 reality where our mandate is still to have dominion, to make Jesus known, to saturate the earth, but there's this resistance. And as followers of Jesus... My encouragement to us is that we would use every single means possible to make the name of Jesus known, to bring the characteristics and aspects and reality of the kingdom to bear on our world. But we must never forget that our primary allegiance is Jesus, that as the church, Our job is to make Jesus look great. Our job is to make his kingdom look lovely. Our primary job is to create a counter culture known as the kingdom of God where the outside world looks in and they see and they taste and they feel and they experience the goodness and grace that Jesus has to offer them. And the political conversation, while deeply important, while deeply significant, it's just a part of this. It's a part of God's great mission to make Jesus known. And we must always be a people whose priority is the promotion and the purity of the kingdom of God. We want our city to know about Jesus. We want our world to know about Jesus. And by God's grace, He's given us His Spirit. He's granted us favor and opportunity to participate in the political arena in such a way that we might be able to do that. And so, the question that we need to ask ourselves the, the conversations that we need to be having as a church, that you need to be having, you know, as a family, as a community group, with, in your DNA group, with other believers. It's not merely about policy. It's not merely about political allegiance. It's about how do we make Jesus know. That's the end game. How do we make much of Jesus? How do we glorify Jesus? How do we magnify Jesus? That's our number one priority. That's our only priority. Amen, church? So as we enter into this world, as we... Have these conversations. May the gospel and glory of Jesus stay at the center and be our focus. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you have modeled for us what it looks like to be full of grace and truth. You've modeled for us compassion and justice. And, and my prayer for us is that you would give us wisdom as we walk this out, as we try and figure out what it looks like to do this. It's so hard, it's so messy, it's so it's so broken. Genesis three is just as alive and well there as it is everywhere else in the political arena. And so we we walk into this, and it's like we we it just feels so foreign. It feels like we're in another world, and it's because we are. It's because we are. And so, would you grant us wisdom and your grace? As we navigate these waters, help us to love one another well. Help us to love our world well. Help us to love our political opponents or, or those who are on the opposite end well. But ultimately, Jesus, help us to love you well. And we pray in your name. Amen. Amen, church. Thanks.